Innovation is a difficult thing to measure. But when the list of scientific, industrial, and commercial breakthroughs is as long as those credited to Bell Labs, one must recognize the truly groundbreaking run at the claim to have been, for a period arguably spanning at least 20 to 30 years, the most consistently innovative research center in the world prior to the Internet age. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time to have Hello, and welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. My name is Hans Launder. Uh, tonight, I am joined by the full crew, Mr. Nick Mason. Hey. Mr. Hank Oslow. Good evening. And Mr. Adam Smith. Hey, guys. Adam, do we have any uh, announcements we want to kick off with? Oh, no. I was looking up the Bitcoin blockchain thing. We're still poor. Nothing. Nothing's changed. Back to you. Awesome. Well, now that we've commiserated in our uh, shared poverty, let's talk about something that for a time in America actually alleviated poverty and uh, lifted many people into a new way of life. Um, if you've ever interacted in any way with uh, data networking or cell phones or solar panels or anything utilizing lasers, or any basic computer operating system, or satellite technology, or digital signal processing, or even most telephone systems, you probably owe your interaction with these technologies to one very specific company or group that existed um, for about 60 years in its entirety in the 20th century. And uh, this group also happened to have been involved in the pioneering of uh, long-distance television transmissions, radio astronomy, uh, the first digital computation machine, uh, some small feats such as transatlantic telephone calls, long-distance computation, uh, some very important discoveries in the fields of uh, quantum, quantum mechanics, as well as uh, wave theory and light manipulation theories. Uh, I believe well, they pioneered the C programming language as well. Yes, they did. They, uh, you know, basically every single uh, Linux machine that runs every piece of the global internet infrastructure today is uh, can trace its origins back to this group. Uh, and of course, we're talking about Bell Labs. Um, You've probably heard of Bell Labs before if you went to business school. um, It's probably been brought up as an example of innovation, corporate innovation. Um, Typically, it's brought up in the context of things like um, Xerox PARC, 
um, or a few other sort of corporate R&D project, you know, R&D groups also along the lines of wider American R&D projects like the Manhattan Project, uh, the Apollo program, DARPA, uh, and so on. But uh, Bell Labs was very peculiar in the sense that uh, it was actually the work of a phone company, uh, initially a telephone company, uh, and, and a unique partnership between two companies that were sort of operating as one, which would be uh, Western Electric and AT&T. Um, now, AT&T is still with us to this day, uh, probably one of the largest um, telecommunications companies in the world, um, certainly within the United States, uh, and controls a massive amount of global communications. Uh, but at the time, AT&T was similar to what it uh, is now, except bigger and more predominant in the market. AT&T uh, was very much responsible for sort of the, the wiring of America in many ways, uh, really bringing mass communication to the country in a, in a way that uh, had never been attempted before. Uh, and it was one of the feats that really separated the United States from nearly every other country on the planet, was our ability to build, maintain, and continuously improve, improve upon the manufacturing, quality control, and utilization of uh, communications infrastructure. Uh, now, most of that did come out of AT&T, and uh, a great deal of the work that was done to continuously uh, pioneer and build out new technologies came from uh, Bell Labs. Now, in the course of that work, Bell Labs performed thousands of other functions that led to um, hundreds of scientific discoveries, probably tens of thousands of patented inventions and technological progressions that uh, we know of, some of which I believe might have been classified because at one point Bell Labs was uh, one of the go-to institutions for both the U.S. military and uh, the intelligence agencies. Uh, it is a core part of the American sort of technological progression of the 20th century. Uh, you can really owe our, our standing in the world today to the, a lot of the work that was done in Bell Labs. And most people within the tech sector, if you uh, have you know worked in tech or if you've um, gone to school for any kind of technical expertise, you have definitely heard of Bell Labs and you've probably encountered interviews or memoirs written by people who uh, are sort of the corporate tech titans of today, uh, many of whom on the older side definitely interacted with people who worked at Bell Labs, might have even interned there themselves or certainly worked under someone who worked at Bell Labs at one point. Um, people like Bill Gates, and Larry Ellison and some other old timers, if you want to call them that, Eric Schmidt, uh, have definitely spoken multiple times about you know, their interactions when they were young and getting into tech with sort of, sort of the uh, the old Bell Labs veterans and sort of the lessons that they taught them. One of the so, the comments that I recall uh, from those that sort of class of '97 or whatever it is of computing. Uh, I think that includes people like Larry Ellison at Oracle, and one of the things he remarked upon, uh, and in sort of an aspirational uh, direction for his own company of Oracle to become a large research-oriented company in a way, was that in his mind, IBM was in, in many ways the pinnacle of what the computing industry could have become you know, after IBM had not, uh, 
not demolished itself or Microsoft not demolished it. But his point was that basically because of the size and the quasi-monopoly that IBM had, like AT&T had, in order to fund what Bell Labs became, they were able to do the very long-term research that Bell Labs clearly was able to do and the, the fundamental foundational research that is still used today in many of the systems that we all depend upon. Uh, and the, the fact that we have um, arguably a more global competitive system where there's less of that type of research going on uh, is an interesting concept whereby, you know, the, the free market theory would indicate or argue that you would want to have as much uh, competition uh, and the least amount of monopoly as possible in order to foster the type of innovation that we would be able to use the most. But it seems in this case, at least, that it may, may actually be the opposite. Uh, that right. was at least his contention. Well, the the vertical integration that was very, it, it was a completely vertically integrated company. Um, that, you know, that's one of the comments that Gartner, I believe, uh, when he gave a talk about this uh, book, that sort of serves as the basis for what we're talking about today, um, the idea factory which is really, I think, the only mainstream um, sort of contemporary book written about the history of Bell Labs. Um, but Gertner was actually giving a talk at Microsoft uh, about the book, but he did mention uh, in response to a question that was asked him after he gave his talk in Q&A that Bell Lab, or that, I'm sorry, AT&T, along with Western Electric, this was sort of the, the ideally... Um, vertically integrated company. A lot of companies were, uh, or corporations were vertically integrated or mostly vertically integrated at the time um, because this is really the turn of the 20th century. And as we discussed in our episode in the progressive era, um, antitrust was somewhat in effect, but not always being utilized. And uh, most of the cor major corporations were sort of leading the economy were very, very vertically integrated. Um, and it was just sort of commonplace that you would control all of that, all aspects of your value chain, of your manufacturing process, of your supply chain process, your real estate. Uh, everything would be under your control as much as possible. And that would include your R&D. Um, in this era of the U.S. economy, the big... Uh, sort of the big trend or the big novel idea at the time was this, uh, let's say, exploration of economies of scale. What do we get if we really exploit our economies of scale? Well, in theory, we can get big industrial R&D labs where we can do all kinds of things. Uh, we can charter all kinds of different scientific uh, investigations and we can build all kinds of prototypes because we can afford to. We're already bringing all these people in-house to do all these pieces of work. What if we assign each of them an additional R&D task, and then on top of that, we have people who are strictly R&D, uh, and we're able to just sort of pay for that, even though it's a net it's a net loss every year, because we're making enormous profits from a totally tightly vertically integrated business. Um, Everyone was sort of exploring this idea. Some people did it more than others. Uh, if you want to look at an industry that didn't have a lot of great R&D for a long time, the steel industry under Carnegie and others 
not a lot of great R&D. Uh, if you want to look at an industry that had a lot of great continuous R&D and a lot of uh, property expansion, supply chain expansion, the oil industry is a good one. Why do you think and obviously the t- why, why the difference? That? Why do you think the difference between the oil industry and the steel industry in terms of innovation? I think, honestly, it probably had a lot to do with just the management style of the kind of people that were running the oil industry versus... Uh, the steel industry at the time. So you, you were you, you're comparing industries that were somewhat controlled by very dominant players. Obviously, the Rockefeller right. Group, Standard Oil, and uh, and the Carnegie or slash U.S. Steel companies. And they 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 were they were extremely large. I mean, the U.S. Steel Company was the, the biggest company in the world when it was formed, and obviously Rockefeller was enormous as well. Right. So, well, petroleum had effect on very disparate non-industrial uh, uh, businesses such as uh, medicine mm-hmm. pharmaceuticals yep yeah well even just huge amounts of the supply chain like as we see now that all that R&D done by the, the energy companies of their day the oil companies basically led to the explosion of plastic and the use of plastic in everyday life that happened uh, in the, the 50s I believe in I understand era. but you know the that that's an industry that was constantly trying to lower costs, constantly trying to find new markets, constantly trying to develop new products from their core business, which was yeah. the extraction and selling of oil. Empirically, I think you're right, at least as measured by the the health of the companies over right. the 20th century. In terms of how you measure research and development, in um, something is. I don't know, anodyne as steel. Uh, that's a little bit actually somewhat technical, and I'm probably not qualified to do that. But the uh, the comparisons hopefully are not apples to oranges, but what you can do just from a business standpoint is just look at the profitability of the businesses. And the U.S. oil industry has been, since its inception, pretty damn competitive globally. For whatever well, the reason, U.S. oil the industry, industry is not. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the U.S. the oil industry, the telecommunications industry, and the general uh, software enterprise software industries have all done extraordinarily well over the course of the twentieth century, and are now sort of the predominant, along with finance and maybe entertainment, the predominant industries in America. Uh, the predominant I, employers. Yeah. I would argue, and, and this is just speculation, but I would argue that at least one of the big factors driving the competitiveness of the oil industry is that the the oil on the ground in the United States is actually somewhat um, a major factor in that. And if you look at what happened in the steel industry where the imports from other industrialized countries were undercutting American steel, uh, those countries did not have supplies of oil, but they, they had to focus on something. And if they're going to focus on something they can do, which is basically harness human capital, uh, organize it, and if they have access to iron ore, if they can buy it in Australia and ship it up to Japan, in the case of those guys, or the Germans who are just good engineers and things like that. Uh, and it was mainly the Japanese, actually, that undercut the, the American steel industry in the 70s. Uh, and they have no oil at all. Uh, so they couldn't even compete in that industry. So I think that's part of like the explanation. It's just like a matter of the geology of America, I think, helps that industry forward. So... Bell Labs was um, a product of this kind of unique partnership going on between Western Electric and uh, AT&T. And 
at the beginning of the 20th century, really in like 1907, let's uh, let's say is is going to the. I should say 1907 Western Electric, which is the the manufacturing subsidiary of of AT and T, uh, creates this research this R and D department, um, but it eventually can it, it assumes this sort of neutral structure and it becomes its own company um, between both AT and T and Western Electric and it develops this like unique billing uh, cycle where it can build either depending on the project. Both companies, in theory, could go to Bell Labs um, and ask for certain projects to be performed, certain work to be done, and then would be billed accordingly. Uh, a lot of the government to in military and government to Bell Labs pipeline was done through AT and T, and a lot of that. And Gertner kind of talks about that briefly, and that has to do with the fact that AT and T people at AT and T knew people in the government, and vice versa. Um, primarily because the government and the military really relied on AT&T for maintaining this internal phone system, this internal communication system, uh, and had done some work for them on the side developing alternate alternate systems, uh, mostly for national security. Um, and also AT&T had been investigated by the government before and had been in the government's crosshairs at one point already. Uh, so there's a lot of contacts. And uh, AT&T was really the one really driving a lot of the work that was done at Bell Labs, although Western Electric um, did drive some really critical work, such as a lot of the work that became both transistors and semiconductors, I believe, was actually under the direction of Western Electric towards Bell Labs. Um, so we should talk about like th these both these companies have their own very, very large engineering departments the turn of the 20th century. Um, and there was a lot of like duplication. There's often times they're having, they're doing the same thing. Uh, some parts of these engineering departments were working on the same project, but for either Western Electric or for AT&T. Uh, and initially the idea was, well, they'll come up with different solutions and we'll be able to compare the best one. That doesn't work. Um, it didn't work at all didn't work because technically Western Electric for large expenditures had to go to AT&T and get the money to do certain things. And that would mean less of a budget for the engineering department at AT&T and it ended up just becoming a big political clusterfuck constantly. Um, so this was one of the reasons why this, um, these R&D these functions are eventually molded together and sort of neutralized, not neutralized, but made neutral away from the, engine, the internal engineering departments of both companies. Uh, but the Bell system itself was really, this system is really, if we, uh, it's often just called the system throughout the book. Kelly and Shockley and all these guys who we kind of heard of over the years, Fisk, who end up doing various aspects of work on which, what was just called the system internally, uh, is really the entire internal communications structure of the United States. That was what AT&T Wait, I, I have a question. Didn't, um, didn't Shockley get in trouble for uh, race hate? Yeah, that was later in his life. Uh, Shockley was a very extremely accomplished electrical engineer and physicist mm -hmm. um, who did a lot of amazing work at Bell Labs. Um, I mean, didn't, didn't he, wasn't he one of the two people that invented the transistor? 
Yes. He also did an incredible amount of work on solid-state mechanics, solid-state science. Uh, a lot of his work led to this to, you know, development of the semiconductor. Uh, Bell Labs, actually, an interesting note, had, I think in the early or the late 30s, had basically accidentally prototyped the semiconductor um, and had already handpicked silicon as the most likely material to be utilized for uh, production. Now, a lot of manufacturing science wasn't there yet, so they couldn't quite get it right. Uh, but it is interesting to know that they were ahead of, you know, Intel by like 50 years. Uh, they, in, you know, the rest of Silicon Valley would actually spend a long time trying to figure out if silicon was the best material to use. And it was inter it's interesting because Bell Labs <laughs> had already kind of solved this problem and was just sort of waiting for... Uh, technology well, to catch up. It's with interesting. Their that story is very common in the computing industry, whereby the Silicon Valley guys were actually building upon a lot of the the legacy developments of the East Coast establishment computing companies, including Bell Labs, uh, and obviously Oracle built the relational database standard that IBM actually invented to a degree. Uh, the Xerox system was the foundation uh, for the. Uh, well, Xerox Park in particular, we should mention that. It was very comparable to Bell Labs. That was actually based in Palo Alto, Palo Alto Research Center. That was the inspiration for the Macintosh user interface. And so these are all New York, New York companies, by the way. And they just never could actually get the, the market share or the products out there at the speed and rate at which the Silicon Valley companies were able to do. So there, there's something. Um, go ahead, Nick. Well, I'm still curious. I think some of our listeners are too. What exactly did Shockley do to get in trouble? Because obviously, he's kind of a chief. What didn't he do? He, he was well, a eugenicist. He wanted smart people to breed. Yeah, basically. He, he basically... I don't remember the, the total specifics of what he did. I didn't actually look into it too much for this episode. Um, my understanding... It's actually brought up one time in the book that I remember... Um, and it's brought up as like just a, an aside, like, oh, later on in his life, he would be accused of being a racist. Um, but the book it actually goes to great lengths to talk about the life of Shockley and his contributions to Bell Labs and his work with uh, the United, United States government and the U.S. military and um, all of his work in pioneering physics. But like I think that what he was basically accused of at its core was a eugenics, as Adam was talking about, which is like he was promoting this idea that, oh, we should, I think, engage in birth control, sterilization, stuff like that, like kind of quasi eugenics. And then he standard. also. 20s style right. stuff, yeah, like yeah, 20s yeah, progressive yeah, yeah. stuff. I mean, we did a whole, we did a show on eugenics. And I mean, the entire East Coast scientific establishment was in favor of eugenics in the 1910s, 20s, and even part of the 30s. So this notion that he was, I mean, that was the era he grew up in, that he became a scientist in. So it's not surprising that he kind of was imbued with some of those beliefs. Um, but Well, thankfully now someone like him would not be able to to get a job. Right, he would be doxxed and fired before he even, you know, got a like a decent job at, at Bell Labs today. Um, but I think he was also accused of just trying to find correlations between race and IQ, 
race and general intelligence. Yeah, wasn't that right. he was trying to find them so much as he, noted uh, he yeah, like he there were a couple of uh, instances where he noted like, well, anyone with personal experience as to the matter, um, and also where he like repeated what was the. Uh, and actually still is. Uh, in fact, if you talk to anybody remotely in the field of psychometrics, uh, the standard opinion of people who study uh, these matters. I mean, at the time, like this was not even a uh, a like conservative outcome. This was or a belief. This was actually pretty hardcore kind of liberal progressivism. Uh, there was a, a whole strain of thought that, well, you know, these disadvantages that are uh, innate can be overcome with the appropriate amount of social engineering now that we have these uh, socially skilled technocrats that have the ability to bootstrap these populations. The sky is the limit. Let's go to the moon, etc. Right. We have the technology. I mean, we sort of do. <laughs> so, um, 1925 is technically when AT&T officially creates Bell Telephone Laboratories as its own standalone company, but there's some interesting context running up to this. So, uh, Kelly, who's this guy that ends up leading all of the innovation really done at uh, Bell Labs, and he sort of quietly in a Machiavellian way works his way up the ranks into an official position and he you know really uh, is very much responsible for a lot of the important work done at Bell Labs for decades um, when he gets to AT&T uh, the uh, 1910s the US government uh, is beginning to look at AT&T as necessary for general economic growth and believes that there should be certain steps taken to ex help expand the company, um, which is interesting because not long prior to this, AT&T was kind of in their crosshairs. And obviously, multiple times after this period, AT&T would fall under sort of the uh, crosshairs of the U.S. government until eventually they were the Ma Bell system was broken up in uh, the mid '80s. Um, but uh, a group of senators issued a report, and they basically on the phone business and said that uh, because it's such a sensitive technological piece of infrastructure, that uh, it's an it needed it was a natural monopoly, and it needed to be one. Basically, and at the time, they were totally correct. Right, right. Like one hundred percent. So, I mean, if you if you contrast something like telecommunications or communications of any kind with something like electricity, electricity has a protocol. You run at the uh, kind of agreed upon hertz, which is enforced because that's what all of your electrical equipment runs on and voltage and then the protocol is you connect the wires together and electricity flows i mean it's more complicated than that but at its base that's how it works so you can have multiple different uh generating grids that you know have whatever business arrangement is necessary 
once you start dealing with communications, things get a lot more complicated because suddenly you have network effects. You need to be able to talk to particular people who are associated with particular communications providers, which means that, I mean, this is the sort of thing that you see today in certain uh, segments of the uh, information economy, but significantly more mediated, you need a way for all of these providers to not just charge their customers, but to charge each other and not just each other. But it's like, if you're trying to place a phone call from San Francisco to New York and you need seven different providers in a line to all agree, I mean, we, we can do this now. It's totally possible now that we have, uh, that we have computers, we have automated, uh, automated recording of these transactions we have like the financial infrastructure to settle up at the end of the month but none of this stuff existed prior to you know maybe the the 70s if you were going to be maximally ambitious in establishing a lot of this stuff and it, it certainly wasn't possible you know when this sort of thing was being invented when, when, uh, in the 30s when alexander graham bell uh and and his uh, research partner Watson invented or basically discovered the telephony system that we use today. I think is more a way of putting it uh, correctly. Uh, they became um, they became sort of rock stars, and they were inventors. And they had their own company, and they had a patent that restricted the expansion of their technology for about twenty years, which is you know, roughly the length of a patent. And their approach was uh, somewhat of a, an engineer's approach to, or an inventor's approach, I should say, to getting a technology out there when they try to do a, a business, whereby they wanted to keep control of things. They wanted to lease the, the telephones. They didn't want to sell them. Uh, they wanted to go very gradually. They wanted to control every little detail of it. And when their patent expired, there was a huge explosion of all these different companies trying to compete and undercut each other. And you ended up with this thicket of systems whereby all these uh, companies were setting up their own telephone poles. Uh, and because the technology wasn't there, whereby they could actually send multiple voice calls over the same wire like they do today, it was basically each conversation from point A to point B had to have its own separate wire. And most of this stuff uh, couldn't go very far. And this is how the local companies were started. And what J.P. Morgan ended up doing was, uh, and actually the, the Bell Company tried to, tried to sell actually to the Western Union Telegraph Company, which is the largest company in the United States at the time. And they turned them down, which was really stupid. And that this, the asking price was $100,000, if you can believe that. And they said, uh, they said no. And they ended up trying to do it their own, um, on their own. After some patent battles, the Bell Company was actually somewhat triumphant, and it caught the attention of J.P. Morgan. And he saw something much more, much more grand in, in the potential. Just like he had funded uh, Carnegie in the formation of U.S. Steel, uh, he saw the potential of the telephone system on a transcontinental level. And that, that was only possible with the amount of capital that somebody like J.P. Morgan had. And in doing so, you enable the network effect that you couldn't really achieve with this very primitive technology and the very local systems that were not compatible with each other, or that at least they, in theory they were, but they were not willing to connect the wires together. And so he was actually the guy who got uh, AT&T, which 
as what Bell became once they got the funding from him to finish the first transcontinental San Francisco to New York uh, telephone call. And so once that kicked off, uh, the telephone took off kind of like a rocket. Uh, The number of subscribers were were growing very rapidly after that point. And so it just, um, it it is something that you, you can, you can sort of think of like electricity, but it's a little bit different because, you know, with electricity, you don't need to send the power from San Francisco to New York. That wouldn't make any sense. You can keep it somewhat local. But in terms of the communication stuff, it would make some sense. And so the more interconnected you can make it, the better. And that's the network effect. Yeah, I mean, as I was saying, uh, Congress is trying to, desperately trying to accelerate the growth of this company so much that uh, – uh, this is a quote from Gertner, House of Representatives Committee, clearly sympathetic to the prospect of simply dealing with a single corporate representative, complained that telephone competition was, quote, an endless annoyance. In the Willis-Graham Act of 1921, the U.S. Congress formally exempted the telephone business from federal antitrust laws. By then, the so-called natural monopoly had grown even larger. Indeed, the engineering department at West Street had become so big, 2,000 on its technical staff and another 1,600 on its support staff, that AT&T executives agreed in December 1924 to spin it off into a semi-autonomous company. They chose That's the name. That's wild. That's like – so I want to focus on the earlier part of what you said that – Essentially, the government found it easier to regulate a small group or, in this case, one particular company yeah. than a bunch of uh, a bunch of companies competing in the free market. This sounds very similar to the story with, you know, how uh, finance, uh, for instance, was oligopolized um, over the uh, over the course of the late twentieth uh, century and numerous other industries. Well, I always interpreted basically all of the TARP program and most of the Dodd-Frank stuff um, and the restrictions on bank chartering that were put in place after the financial crisis as sort of entrenching the current companies within finance, big finance and just saying, well, I don't really want to have to deal with new companies, so let's just make these ones sort of permanent in their uh, intertwining of financial infrastructure, and we can just worry about regulating them over time. Like it's clear that the U.S. government uh, has no interest in you know, free market economics applies to like the restaurant business. It doesn't apply to telecommunications or finance, which is interesting. It's sort of a pick and choose, like something that's not critically important to the economy or national security, like the restaurant business. Who gives a shit? You know, it can be as cutthroat as you want. You can do whatever you want. Something really critical um, that is necessary for economic expansion, totally different story. Well, it's it's not even critical. It, it's, uh, you know, the feedback effect of uh, if you become a, a very politically influential industry or company within the industry by virtue of your size and the payoffs that you can make, suddenly it becomes uh, essential for economic well-being and national security. And it's actually becomes important to uh, prevent you from competition. So you have like a definite uh, rich get richer 
in many cases, literally, uh, particularly in the current year scenario. But I mean, if you're just some guy um, or you have a very dispersed industry to begin with, it's not like they go and try to choose, you know, this, this is going to be the, the food delivery champion that uh, the nation sets its sights upon. You can, you, as you said, you can do what you want there, but if you had one big, like, you know, Joe's food delivery and this is how uh, people are getting you know, 10% of their meals or whatever delivered. That's not necessary. Like grocery stores still exist in that uh, scenario. You still have competitors in that scenario, but suddenly anything that affects them, it's like, ah, oh, well, you know, we're going to have people starving their apartment. They're just going to have to live off of wine and cat food. So, Bell Labs, you know, Gertner's making this point that Bell Labs is formed as a direct result of this sort of partnership with the U.S. government because they had reached economies of scale that they had always sought after. And now they had what seemed to be ironclad legal protection and an ironclad agreement for development with the federal government at a time when the federal government was slowly strengthening its hold over states and uh, national infrastructure. This is the perfect time to, you know, build out this research and development um, lab because, even as its own company, because now we can finally kind of rest. We don't have to worry about certain aspects of doing large-scale business in America. Now we can really start to find ways of improving people's lives, but also building new markets from scratch, which is really what Bell Labs ended up doing, what at and ended up doing. So right off the bat, as soon as Bell Labs kind of gets going, um, there's, there's numerous inventions that are being put out. Um, so the first electrical sound recording is actually pioneered and developed and product, pretty much productionized about a month after Bell Labs is officially incorporated. A lot of this is work that had already been worked on both at Western Electric and uh, AT&T, but now it's under the Bell Labs banner. Um, quality control theory, also that same year. Um, later that year, thermal noise theory is also being developed. So there's a lot of theories revolving around mostly the development of phone lines. Phone lines at this time were pretty difficult to manufacture properly. There's all these um, effects in physics that people don't really understand yet. We, we can kind of understand how they work or how to make them work, but it produces all of these bi physical byproducts that and phenomena we can't quantify. So much of the scientific advancements that came out of Bell Labs were like revolved around what happens when we're sending all kinds of electricity through these lines. Like what, what exactly is going on? What are the side effects of that? What happens to the materials we're using? How do we use that to improve our material engineering process? So there's um, all these variants of chemically uh, synthesized rubber that come out of Bell Labs that are used in all kinds of other production processes after that. Uh, that were specifically developed because they were noticing a lot of feedback loops were occurring and was melting the lines. Um, there were all kinds of metallurgists 
that basically made their entire career and got millions of dollars in funding for all sorts of crazy metallurgy research um, that ended up paying off exponentially in all kinds of ways, investigating all kinds of new materials and how they might be smelted at what temperatures. Ends up all of American industry and then the world ends up using this research to productionize uh, basically industrial manufacturing uh, and raw and raw source collection processes. Uh, later on, tenor arrays, permender magnetic alloys are created, negative feedback amplifi amplification is discovered, television transmission is perfected. We have the first quartz electronic clock. We have the early pioneering of what would eventually become a fax machine, uh, the first transatlantic telephone service, the wave nature of the electron is pioneered at Bell Labs by Davidson, Davison and uh, Germer, who would, Davison in particular would end up being a very important uh, research scientist who would consult with Bell Labs over the years. Um, the first wearable electronic hearing aids, telephone trunking traffic analysis, sampling theorem, artificial larynx, broadband coax, and this is all before 1930. And this is even taking into account all kinds of other work that's being done. So it's very clear that uh, AT&T bet on the right horse. Um, and immediately they have several thousand employees already working there. At, at its peak, uh, Gertner makes this point that over 3,600 PhDs would be working at Bell Labs on any given day. And it would have tens of thousands, or well over 10,000 engineers who were not PhDs, but were accomplished engineers in their own right. And then thousands and thousands of support staff. This was probably the most preeminent institution for technolo technological research that had ever existed. Just in its sheer size, scale, and diversity of subject matter. You could be a metallurgist from Mississippi working alongside someone who specialized in electromagnetic wave theory from Upper New England, and you could be on the same project together working on a new product or a new telephone line or a new transistor. Uh, this was sort of the power that uh, Bell Labs brought to the corporate sector of the United States. Um, and no one had really ever attempted something like this before. We did mention in our episode on Skunk Works that there was a similar um, element at play at Skunk Works where you would bring together people from different fields and backgrounds to work on certain products together, and they would keep engineers in-house, they'd keep machinists, machinists in-house, they'd keep uh, uh, maintenance guys in-house, they would have their own on-site fabrication facilities, they could do their own prototyping. Um, but certainly not on this scale, and certainly not with the wide breadth of topics, both theoretical and actual engineering, it's sort of being combined in real time. Uh, that's why, you know, later on, Bell Labs, even before uh, sort of the, the post-war era, uh, uh, they have like the moving coil microphone, radio astronomy, Stereo sound recording, transmissions, and the and phonographing, um, uh, the first sort of ra raster raster scan television, which is really how we get high def TV later on, 
um, the vocoder speech synthesis and Boolean logic re relay computers. It's really critical for later digital com computation work that sort of syncs up with the von Neumann architecture. Um, and a lot of this, you know, it's it is a confluence of uh, brilliant people, certainly in one place. But a lot of this was you have a super dense source of capital because you have this company that's obviously immensely profitable or certainly has the potential to be very profitable. It's a capital intensive business because you've got to lay all of this cable. You've got to make all these telephones. You need this huge switchboard infrastructure, et cetera. And as soon as you start doing that, you, you run into like a pretty clear set of technical problems and phenomenon that because you're operating on such high scale, you know, if somebody comes up with a theory and it's wrong, you know it because you're, you're not going to roll it out on however many uh, hundreds of thousands of miles of cable. If you know, this rubber compound just doesn't work or whatever. And conversely, if you actually come up with a solution to a lot of these fundamental problems that you just discovered because literally nobody had ever laid a, you know, N hundred mile long cable before, uh, then that's worth a lot of direct ec economic payoff. So it's kind of the, the golden uh, combination of uh, uh, circumstances for a lot of interesting problems to be solved because they were discovering a lot of interesting problems and they had every incentive to actually solve them. Right. And while all these various pieces of work are going on, there's like really critical day-to-day -day engineering that needs to be solved. So one of the critical pieces of day-to-day -day engineering that you're trying to solve at the time have been vacuum tubes in that kind of murky period where we transitioned from vacuum tube technology to transistor technology. Um, uh, vacuum tubes could essentially could change alternating currents into a direct current they could make, and they were kind of a crucial component in um, really early radios and televisions. Uh, and they were in use all over U.S. government research, corporate, uh, corporate, uh, kind of the early corporate research. Um, the country was very rapidly relying on this sort of vacuum tube technology. But at the time, the manufacturing process for it was not uh, adequately quantified. Um, no one had really nailed down how to do it perfectly. Uh, Gertner kind of relays these stories where uh, they'd be working endlessly on these vacuum tubes or these early transistors later on, and like someone would walk in a room, shut the door too too strongly, and just that little vibration would fuck the whole thing up, and they'd have to start over. And they couldn't they couldn't understand why. Um, but all of the work that was done by Kelly and others under him, and uh, and sort of Buckley and th these various guys who led the organization, um, they're primary focus was the vacuum tube and then the transistor because it was such a crucial piece of technology for all their day-to-day -day operations all this other stuff that they're inventing um, or pioneering is useful 
and it would go on to be useful later. It would it would uh, you know give it would bear dividends, uh, but it would not bear nearly as many dividends as sort of the true perfection of the vacuum tube fabrication process. Um, and so early on, Kelly basically he he has a a tube what they called the tube shop, and it was this you know section of Bell Labs totally devoted to just vacuum tube production. And they made 15 different models of potential vacuum tubes, totally different from each other, because they were trying to just figure, they were throwing everything against the wall, testing it, making sure it's mathematically sound, sound from an engineering standpoint, sound from a fabrication standpoint, and then see how it worked. Um, and then they had different sizes. So they had like these massive water-cooled tubes that were the size of a wine bottle that they could uh, power like an entire broadcast station with. And then they had tiny, very small tubes for just public address systems. And then they had framed repeater tubes um, that they could use for transcontinental connections. Uh, and uh, Kelly eventually, through his time there, he extended the life of the Western Electric Telephone repeater tubes from 1,000 hours to 80,000 hours. Um, which was incredible. And this is why one of the reasons why he you know, jumped on the radar of the Bell Labs executives is a guy that could potentially be leadership material. Um, because he basically going from 1000 hours to 80,000 hours in a short amount of time of R of R&D leadership and engineering is a pretty insane feat um, when you're talking about a technology that was very finicky um, and couldn't be fabricated very well up to that point. Uh, Kelly was really the guy who made vacuum tube production and vacuum and uh, vacuum tube diversity, if you want to call it that, uh, a reality for the United States, uh, which would eventually allow for the creation of transistors and then semiconductors thereafter, because we had sort of solidified what worked and what didn't work. And we had made a lot of important discoveries along the way, so now we can kind of make the next jump because we have a solid foundation. And this is sort of the innovation model that Bell Labs undertook. Uh, Gertner describes it as a problem-rich environment. Um, so there were so many problems and there was so much that was unknown that there was a never-ending stream of things to solve. And that might be part of the reason why we look back on Bell Labs so fondly. Because they were building on existing research and then they, you know, that had did, did come before them. And then they had all of these problems and all these un, or not understood phenomena springing from that. And they basically spread out in every direction trying to solve as much as they could, as quickly as they could. Uh, and they achieved an immense amount of work because there was so much sort of low-hanging fruit uh, that needed to be done. And that might explain why, for example, Bell Labs probably spent less uh, annually, even at its peak, than the average modern corporate R&D department does every year when you adjust for inflation. Uh, they were able to you know, achieve economies of scale and find all the low-hanging fruit find all these fundamental scientific theories, discover them properly, you know, do very basic fabrication processes for all these different kinds of technologies. But now 
corporate R&D is so tightly focused on incremental product optimization. And, um, you know, we, I think we've in a lot of ways hit the limits of our materials engineering and our well, materials science. I wanted to discuss uh, or contrast the amount of innovation, if that's even a thing you can easily measure, because it is kind of always an apples to oranges, you know, the, the light bulb versus the telephone, what's better? I don't know. Right. But uh, what, what I want to ask all of you is how do you compare the innovation from Google today, which is somewhat of a monopoly uh, for the search market, compared to the innovation from AT&T? <laughs> Uh, or Bell Labs. I mean, it's not as fundamental for sure. I mean, they, if you want to talk about, uh, you know, 3000 PhDs, I'm pretty sure they, uh, they have that beat, um, by sheer weight, if nothing else. But, uh, I mean, to be fair, it, it's the similar sort of thing where they had a certain set of business problems that, you know, they were far more esoteric than how do we get the signal from point A to point B, but they've come up with fundamental advances and things like machine learning, um, a, a lot of like data center operation stuff. A lot of that is, uh, is kind of, uh, sort of just they engineering do... versus innovation. Maybe. I, I, well, I to, to yes and no. I mean, if you look at like, uh, you know, globally distributed databases coordinated by atomic clocks, like that's, you know, it's kind of impressive. Mm. Um, you know, does the, it's, does the cat have something to say, Hank? <laughs> you know, you know, it's, uh, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, it's not as fundamental of advances. And if, if you want to talk about, you know, fields where there have been kind of similar uh, advances, I mean, metallurgy actually did improve a lot between, uh, you know, call it 1970 and today. Like, we have non-galling stainless steel alloys that are just incredibly better than what existed we have in canal we have like all sorts of uh advances in computational modeling of stuff that lets us build high pressure vessels uh that are you know much much smaller uh than uh was previously possible i mean technological advances have not stagnated by any degree it's just when you when you kind of wander into a problem area like that like what google does is is very esoteric it's like kind of the abstracted notion of you know searching and organizing the world's information i think was their uh their motto uh at one point uh maybe after they discarded uh, don't be evil they uh, they settled on that but that's uh kind of inherently subjective it does involve a lot of uh, heavy lifting uh, in terms of the techniques that you need to invent if you're going to make that practical. Um, and it's it's often a lot more proprietary than, hey guys, we discovered that the electron is a wave. Like that's that's a big deal. That's a discoverable thing. You can take just like if somebody says to you, this is what this is, you can take that and you can actually do stuff with that. If you're an engineer and you've been modeling it some different way and somebody is like, actually do it this other way, 
even if like that's literally the five word description you can like you can use that for stuff if somebody says oh i invented this globally distributed database with atomic clocks so that it looks synchronous even though uh, everything is happening in a bunch of places at once that's a lot more difficult uh by virtue of the implementation details to make possible. I mean, if you want to talk about kind of fields where this is getting, uh, you know, I think cryptocurrency is a pretty interesting example of this because they're actually, you know, solving uh, the the Byzantine generals problem, as they call it, is uh, that's a fundamental computer science thing. And that lets you do all sorts of crazy stuff uh, that you literally could not do before with distributed systems. So, I mean, this is this is sort of rambling, but I mean, you have these kind of unicorn concentrations, but if you took all of the stuff that Bell Labs did, their 3,000 PhDs or whatever, and you split it into 100 groups of 30, then you'd still have all the same stuff and you'd still have the same amount of technological progress but you wouldn't have this brand associated with it well that's I the mean, trick accounting for keep all in this. mind that's look, the big look, debate quickly keep in mind that uh something like thirty-three thousand patents came out of like the primary independent bell labs era this is when patents actually meant something yeah. ibm patents I, I think IBM has some guy whose job it is to make sure that year after year they have the most patents of any U.S. company or something. They they usually use that in their recruiting pitches, yeah. and it's like, bro, you're you're a consulting company. You fly over Pajit to install Microsoft Windows. That is how you make money. Yeah, but I don't know why you bother with like chip fabrication and whatnot. It, it can't yeah. possibly make you money. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's it's well indirectly it may, but the the logic is that they have uh, they have the vaunted uh, IBM Research division, and so they can they can differentiate themselves from Accenture uh, in consulting, for example, because they have that ability to offer these turnkey. <laughs> Uh, systems that are custom. Hey, bro, you want to install Watson? Yeah. We got we got Watson for your industry. To be fair, I, 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 I was impressed by how they marketed that. I thought they did a good job with the Jeopardy challenge. But uh, what'd you say, Hans? Well, I wonder what the Bell Labs guys would think of something like IBM at this point. Like, if you if you well, propose to them, have? I mean, you know, who, who are they to judge? Right, but if you propose to them, like, hey, what if you just stopped doing technology and became all became consultants? Like, what would you think of that? I'm, I'm from AT&T. I'm here to consult on how to talk on the phone. <laughs> and, and you can do that once you actually solve the technical problem. So IBM had to solve a lot of technical problems before they could kind of divest themselves of that infrastructure. Like I mean, it, it's like when they sold their uh, their PC hardware division to the Chinese to the Lenovo. Lenovo. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like the, okay, the computer itself. It's not like it's a solved problem per se. You can make a better, faster computer. You can even do really innovative stuff with you know, different instruction sets and vector processors and low power stuff and wireless and all this fun stuff. But it, it's not. The, the guy who's optimizing a, a computer production company 
is optimizing for things like supply chain management and uh, just-in-time production, trying to cram inventory into your resellers, trying to hold on to the money for as long as possible so that you can get the best deal on your upstream suppliers. Like That's what that business is. It's not, gosh, how do we make a computer? That's kind of a solved problem. How do we make this dysfunctional corporation work is a fundamental problem or this this dysfunctional uh, company's IT department work, I guess, is their pitch, which they're not particularly good at, um, but they're good at putting on a good show. Uh, and they're definitely capable of cashing uh, huge checks uh, to try to advance that uh, that supposed goal. So, you know, they, they kind of... Uh, evolved beyond it and you know in telecommunications there does exist a thing exactly like that you have the uh, uh, mobile virtual network operator they lease uh, capacity basically on other people's networks other people's towers and they focus purely on uh marketing their plans like getting interesting rate uh setups getting good partnerships with phone manufacturers having finance angles so that people can afford their phones um you know having like kind of novelty technical stuff that they provide their customers i mean that's uh that's your like a uh, straight talk i think is the walmart one um but and this is a this is a thing that exists, and compared to the amount of capital that they actually have to deploy, they do very well. So it's not out of the question that uh, if AT and T hadn't been broken up, eventually they would have uh, pulled an IBM Lenovo and kind of uh, discarded their actual their actual wire. One thing I want to mention um, is sort of the demographics of Bell Labs. This is very this is an interesting passage. Uh, it was curious, in a way, who they were, these men coming to Bell Labs in New York. Most of them had been trained at first-rate graduate schools like MIT and Chicago and Caltech. They had been flagged by physics or chemistry or engineering professors at these places, and their names had been quietly passed along to Kelly or someone else at the labs. But most had been raised in fly-spec towns, intersections of nowhere and nowhere, places with names like Chickasaw, or Quaker Neck, or Potoski, towns like the one Kelly had come from, rural and pre-modern like Gallatin, towns where their fathers had been fruit growers or merchants or small-time lawyers. Almost all of them had found a way out of a high school teacher, oftentimes who noticed something about them, a startling knack for mathematics, for example, or an insatiable curiosity about like electricity, and had tried to nurture this talent with extra assignments or after school tutoring, all in the hope, never explained to the young man that realized by the ball, gratefully, many years later, that the students could be pushed toward a local university and away from the desolation of a life behind a plow or a cash register. The young Bell Labs recruits had other things in common, almost all grown up with a peculiar desire to know more about the stars or the telephone lines or most often the radio, and especially their makeshift home wireless sets. Almost all of them had put one together themselves, and in turn had discovered how sound could be pulled from the air. So, 
This is something that um, that I've noticed, not just in technology around this time in the United States, but uh, if you go to like the National Portrait Gallery, um, and I don't know if I've used this example before, but if you look at the born in and died uh, sections for all these artists, almost all of them are born in places that you've never heard of. Um, all across the United States, and they all end up dying in, like, New York or Chicago. Um, and this is something similar with Bell Labs in that uh, this is an era when rural America uh, still had st- solid demographics, was still pushing out smart people um, who just needed uh, basically an institution to guide them towards something uh, of a higher calling. And Instead of what we have today, which is sort of these isolated eco chambers uh, or echo chambers of, uh, of I don't know, similar industries all pooling together, mostly software and finance, um, we get very little innovation, very little ideas. But uh, in this case, we actually have sort of a true diversity from across the country, from across different backgrounds, from across varied interests, which is why I think Bell Labs was able to succeed so well didn't have a hard time attracting metallurgists from the south and electrical engineers from the north and uh, you know maybe theoretical physicists from the west coast. Uh, all these people could easily be brought together uh, and utilized together because uh, you know, they all kind of had similar similar quantity similar qualities growing up um, but had strong genetic stock and had come from good backgrounds, raised well, had discipline. And understood that uh, this was sort of their their one golden ticket to a better life, and I think that they cherished it. Well, it's also the uh, the story of NASA at the same time. Uh, they're at at the time, you know, you look at uh, roughly nineteen thirty to and also the U.S. Army uh, for that matter. Uh, from roughly the 1930 time frame to call it, oh, I don't know, like 1970 or so, the U.S. was incredibly great at finding the latent human capital in its heartland, identifying it, and getting it to some uh, some institution um, that could productively use that they <laughs> it there's a there's a couple of books it, it's fun to read like old biographies of uh academics that grew up in this era because a lot of them are like yeah you know i was uh i was finishing up my undergrad i didn't quite know what to do so my professor suggested i apply to mit because i really liked radios and like they just kind of fall ass backwards into ah, oh, and that's when I discovered quasars. Uh, that does not appear to happen right now. The U.S. doesn't really cultivate human capital so much as ruthlessly suppress it. Uh, if you end up at one of these institutions, it's usually via some deployment of some. Uh, social network of one form or another. It's it's exceedingly hard uh, to just kind of make it as a uh, 
a rando from uh, from flyover country that's not pre-vetted by every institution down to kindergarten level. So, I mean, if you want to build something like Bell Labs, but you're restricting yourselves to people that have already made it through, you know, the 30 different filters that currently uh, exist between uh, some random six-year-old and a uh, professional uh, technical research career, then ultimately I don't think you're going to be very successful. Bell Labs also had this really interesting um, sort of Adam Smithian style um, capitalism. Uh, Sorry. Well, the actual Adam Smith, not not no, no. Uh, our, our darling uh, co-host here, but... Uh, they had this real interesting division of labor that uh, that Gertner talks about, um, uh, and it's sort of in relation to this problem-rich environment. Uh, the system's problems and needs were so vast that it was hard to know where to begin explaining them. The system required that teams of chemists spend their entire lives trying to invent new, cheaper sheathing so that the phone cables would not be permeated by rain and ice. The system then required that other teams of chemists spend their lives working to improve the insulation that lay between the sheathing and the phone wires themselves. Engineers schooled in electronics, meanwhile, studied echoes, delays, distortion, feedback, and a host of other problems in the hope of inventing strategies or new circuits to somehow circumvent them. Measurement devices that could assess things like loudness, signal strength, and channel capacity didn't exist yet. So they too had to be created, for it was impossible to study and improve something unless it could be measured. Likewise, the system had to keep track of the millions of daily calls within it, which in turn required vast novel infrastructure for billing. The system had to account for it all. Lab engineers invented a dropping machine to simulate the violence of impact of a receiver dropped into its cradle tens of thousands of times. They fashioned a woodpecker machine meant to resemble that industrious bird in action to test the scratch-resistant qualities of varnishes and finishes. They fabricated what they called an artificial mouth resembling a freestanding microphone to test the aural sensitivity of handsets. They created a machine with a simulated finger to mimic the demands of button pushing and dialing. And it wasn't enough to merely measure the durability of a telephone dial. Other teams of engineers had to calibrate and measure to a level of approaching perfection the precise speed at which the dial rotated. Some men at West Street specialized in experimenting on springs for switchboard keys, others in improving the metal within the springs. ET&T linemen bet with their lives on the integrity of the leather harnesses developed at Bell Labs. They kept them tethered at the great heights, so lab technicians established strength and, strength and standards for the two-inch leather belts, limiting the content of Epsom salts, glucose, free acid, ash, and total water-soluble materials, and improving the metal rivets and parts. I mean, I can go on, but it's so intense, the level of detail that, first of all, Gertner puts into describing the uh, – the, it's a fascinating what, book. What's his background? Is he a scientist or just – uh, No, he's not journalist. a scientist. Okay. The, the funny thing is he admitted in this talk at Microsoft he has no background in science. He is just a journalist. He's a very, very good writer, if extremely detailed. Yeah. The book has hundreds and hundreds of citations from multiple scientific journals um, over the years. But he goes on and on. To, you know, and clearly, he's interviewed. He, I think he mentioned he worked on the book for five and a half years. 
So it's a real labor of love. And he must have interviewed dozens, if not a hundred people who worked at Bell Labs to kind of glean this information. Uh, but what you really see at work here is, is a level of discipline and quality, st statistical quality control that I think really set the standard going forward in corporate America for how exactly you can build an, an efficient production machine of various peoples doing all kinds of real day-to-day -day engineering, real day-to-day -day chemistry alongside theoretical physicists and theoretical electrical engineers who could develop things that could then be utilized in this machine-like production process going forward. Let me ask you what you mean by quality control, because that's usually a, a production uh, context. So are you talking about research, uh, or are you talking about no, the, not, the, not the, the research. Bell system, so, quality control, for, like voice quality and things like that? Well, like when we're describing um, well, other teams of engineers had to calibrate and measure to a level approaching perfection the mm. precise speed at which the dial rotated. Mm. Uh, and then when they're going with um, the 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 leather harnesses, so for whatever reason, Bell Labs decided, oh well, we'll just make those in house because why not? Maybe some guy here has experience with leather, so we'll pool him with some chemical engineers and put together some fucking straps. Like why not? Uh, but they did it with a real quality control method in mind, and there were numerous people at Bell Labs who were involved in quality control manufacturing. Um, one guy, Thornton C. Fry, he was uh, the first math department director at Bell Labs. Um, and he hired, math, he, he hired mathematicians to help physicists, chemists, and communication engineers uh, at Bell Labs, mostly to solve math and computational problems in-house. Um, but he wrote this, uh, he, his best work was something called Probability and Its Engineering Uses. And it outlined um, the treatment of blocking, queuing, congestion, switching, and machine behavior and quality control in manufacturing. Um, and there are numerous other guys that uh, worked in statistical quality control. Uh, this, sub, this, this idea of actually quantifying various metrics, determining what metrics are useful, what aren't. I think today we call them KPIs, um, sort of the basics of data science. Uh, Key performance indicators. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was all developed in-house at Bell Labs. Yeah. Because no one had... there. This stuff did exist. Basic systems engineering and quality control did exist in the United States due to the Second Industrial Revolution. Um, but wait, it didn't... Wait, wait, wait. Define in terms here. Second Industrial Revolution referring to what? Uh, the Second Industrial Revolution, um, really the, the beginnings of the automotive industrial revolution, like 1890s to okay. 1910s. Okay. The be you know, the, the era that led to the creation of Henry Ford, basically. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, in the Great Lakes in the Northeast. Uh, but so this these things were known, but they had not been systematized to this degree, and they were not nearly as uh, verbose or expansive. Uh, so Bell Labs, I think just the, the, the thought process that goes into, not only are we gonna, we have the vertical integration of the company, but vertical integration within Bell Labs of all these, of all aspects of the company's problems, of AT&T's problems, including the leather straps for 
the handyman who are going to go up on the telephone lines. To me, that's incredible. Just that little detail alone, that Bell Labs would take it upon themselves to tackle that. It would come up with a precise production and chemical process for the creation of perfected leather straps so these guys wouldn't fall out. Yeah, I mean, in a contemporary context, you look at how that would be addressed. It's like, A, this isn't our core competency. We want to outsource this. I, like, I, I don't actually care if it works. That's why we have insurance. Like, as long as it kind of sort of works, we'll try to find a strap supplier. Right. If that doesn't work and there literally is none, who actually gets that assignment? It's not your, you know, next young, bright, rising star because it doesn't make any money and it's not your core business. So it ends up getting shunted to whoever, you know, is just kind of a competent guy, ideally, at best, hopefully. And your leather strap uh, guy really has kind of limited incentives to make sure that it's uh, the best, uh, the best damn leather strap uh, to hold up a, uh, you know, 350 pounds of uh, guy and equipment and the uh, raccoon that jumps on his back uh, compared to, uh, you know, kind of uh, freestyling it with, uh, with some rope and a steady hand. It really reminds me of uh, Hewlett Packard uh, in the 2000s when they did exactly what you're talking about, where it was basically Carly Fiorina's management by spreadsheet. And it got even worse with Mark Hurd, uh, who was cost cutter extraordinaire uh but innovation was uh non-existent if not negative and the uh the funny thing is carly fiorina i think was at at&t uh or she was at um some telecom supplier i'm, I'm blanking on what it was but it was it, i think it was tied to bell apps and she got this like an- antithetical philosophy to the core innovation deep research, long-term thinking stuff, and she went the complete opposite, and she wrecked HP. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it, you may, you might post a return in the short run, but it's it's just not going to develop anything in the long run. That That's always been my critique. So uh, th- there's an interesting quote that I think we can kind of start coming to a close on from Gertner. Um, he said, We usually imagine that invention occurs in a flash, with a eureka moment that leads a lone inventor towards a startling epiphany. In truth, large leaps forward in technology rarely have a precise point of origin. At the start, forces that proceed in an invention merely begin to align, often imperceptibly, as a group of people and ideas converge, until over the years or course of months or years or decades, they gain clarity and momentum and the help of additional ideas and actors. Luck seems to matter, and so does timing, for it tends to be the case that the right answer to the right people, the right place, perhaps all three, requires some kind of serendipitous encounter with the right problem, and then sometimes a leap. Only in retrospect do such leaps look obvious. Um, and so you can see this a lot with, like, if you compare what, you know, Bell Labs is focused on in, uh, let's you know, shoot for the stars here, 19 late 1930s right we're focused on pnn junctions complex number calculators uh 
phase gain, stability criteria, crossbar switching systems, Boolean logic, relay computers. Well, 30 years later, late 60s, we're looking at Unix. We're looking at the C programming language. We're looking at LED for optical fibers. We're looking at um, uh, strip holograms, virtual uh, circular switches. You can see how Bell Labs was kind of taking its own internal inventions, its own internal innovation benchmarks or baselines, and then building upon them over time, which is really incredible. Um, instead of, I think, taking a lot of ideas from the outside world, which maybe they did to an extent, um, but it seems to be very much an internally focused group of people who are really building on the ideas already pioneered there, and the culture and the processes that they've worked for them in the past, they continue to utilize them over the decades to build newer and newer technologies and sort of build new markets incidentally.